Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Dr. Raj podcast with Dr. Raj Dasgupta, a show all about educating patients, students, and aspiring doctors about better patient care. Dr. Raj is a quadruple board certified physician and associate professor at the University of Southern California. He was a co-host of the TNT series, Chasing the Cure with Ann Curry, as well as a regular on the TV show, The Doctors. And now, here's our show. Hi, and welcome to the Dr. Raj Podcast. So, the Dr. Raj Podcast isn't only about hardcore medical knowledge to pass your board exams. Now, if you want that, don't get me wrong. Check out my other podcast, Beyond the Pearls. But you know what the Dr. Raj Podcast is about? It's about health, about wellness, about helping others, about just being yourself and, you know, things that the general public just benefit from. So I'm on this motivation right now because I think an organ in your body that always goes under the radar has to be the eye. And how do I know that? Well, two reasons. Number one, I just recently did a board review and I said, you know what, let's talk about the eye and you know, medical pearls associated with this. And a lot of my interns, a lot of my residents were like, whoa, I never realized these things because it goes under the radar. But recently, you know, I do our contacts and telling about myself, you know, and uh, I wanted to get a refill of them. And I went to go see my optometrist and she told me that, wow, I haven't been here in quite a while. So bad Dr. Raj. And she gave me a comprehensive eye exam I'm like, what are you making me do? And oh my God, but I'm glad she did it. It was great. And I got my contacts. I could see everyone, but I thought it'd be interesting to do a seg on, you know, what is good eye care and why are they making me stare at flashing lights and why are they making my pupils all dilated and everything? So I actually got an amazing optometrist to come on the show with me today, of course, because it's my show, it's my friends, but this is a very special person, a friend of the family. This is going to be Dr. Brenda Yeh. Yay! And I told her to actually uh, give me a little something about herself, so I'm going to read this off right now. So Dr. Brenda Yeh received both her Bachelor's of Arts in Molecular Cell Biology and her Doctorate of Optometry degrees uh, from the University of California, Berkeley. In 2010, she completed a primary care geriatric optometry residency with the Veterans Health Administration. With an interest in ocular disease, she continued her career at the VA, now as the Assistant Chief of Optometry at the Sepulveda VA Ambulatory Care Center. 
In 2016, she became an assistant professor of the Southern California College of Optometry and remains active and academic through publications, lectures, and resident training. Dr. Ye is a fellow of the American Academy of Optometry and an active member of the American Optometric Association. And with that being said, Brenda, how are you? And thank you for being here. I'm good. Thank you, Raj. That was such a good and nice introduction. <laughs> See, you only know me as like cool friend, Raj. You didn't know I had like the little like, you know, voice in me for the intro. Yes. Yes. I that, I was actually smiling through the whole thing, actually. <laughs> well, you know, you. That, don't tell anyone this. This is why I close my eyes when I do that, because I'll start laughing if I see you. Looking. Oh, OK. That's why. <laughs> So anyways, um, so what I want to do today is I kind of like scripted it all out nicely. I want to talk about what is a basic eye exam first, if you're going to be nice enough. And I'm going to like interrupt you, not because I'm a bad host, but to kind of focus on certain things so people could pick up why you do it. And after the basic eye exam, let's just talk about your jam. And I heard that your jam is eyeglasses. Is that correct? Yeah, no, for sure. As okay. all optometrists would be. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just making you be special. So um, let's uh, talk about, you know, what ba first question, basically, what does the basic eye exam involve and kind of like how long does it take? Can you answer that question first? So um, usually, you know, you go in and you get pre-tested and that can be oftentimes done by like a technician. Mm -hmm. um, and then you go in to see the doctor and they'll ask you some questions regarding, you know, case history and things like that. And then the doctor goes into the refraction, which is where we kind of ask you guys, hey, what's better? One or two, three or four. Um, and then the last portion of the eye exam is usually the ocular health exam. And that's where we use uh, certain equipment to kind of take a look at the front surface of the eye, as well as the posterior segment or the back surface of the eye. And that portion, we're really just checking the ocular health of the eyes. Okay. So um, I actually, uh, I did a little research because I know how small you are. So for the pretest, you know what I mean? Now tell me if you do this or no, it says that includes things like a color sensitivity test. How do you do a color sensitivity test and why do you do it? So usually it's a color vision test. And the most common way that we tend to do those is with these pseudo isochromatic plates, which is the books that they give you. And mm -hmm. they usually have a bunch of dots on there with numbers on there that you're supposed to read. So uh, for people that may be color deficient, um, those dots just look all like similar in color. So they don't see any of those numbers. Um, and that's usually how it gets tested. Um, why we do it... Um, there are both congenital and acquired color vision problems. Um, I probably think it's the, one of the most important to do it for kids, you know, because, you know, you and I both have really young kids that are like in kindergarten. Yes, you know how, yes. And you know <laughs> how much color is used as like a tool of communication in school, right? Oh, you know, go to the red color flag, everybody join there. And so, you know, I think that's really important for kids to, to know that your kids can differentiate colors. Um, and then, of course, with adults, there's also acquired forms of color deficiency, and usually that can indicate some type of disease and things like that. So that's why we do these screening tests. Oh, that makes sense. So you're talking about when I look at the number, like the, the number six, and it's all in red circles, and there's green circles all around it, that test right. for color. Right, exactly. Well, that, that, makes, that makes totally perfect sense, you know? And I'll tell you this much for some of the medical students listening here, you know, there's a classic drug I use when I treat tuberculosis patients. It's called Istanbutol. And mm -hmm. really loves to call out of eye toxicity and including colorblindness. So cool. That was awesome, man. Yeah. So um, what about peripheral vision test? How do you test my peripheral vision? 
So usually that is done oftentimes with a machine where you kind of sit inside this machine and you're kind of looking in this machine and it's like a video game where you, there's a dot in the middle and you push a button whenever you see squiggly lines off to the side. Okay. Uh, yeah. So, you know, um, peripheral vision similarly can be affected with a lot of different diseases. And the main disease that oftentimes we're looking for is probably glaucoma. Um, but oftentimes, you know, that can also help catch like neurological diseases, like stroke patients oh. and things like that. Um, nice. Well said. Okay. Yeah. Because a lot of people, you know, you, you kind of take it for granted. You don't realize you've lost some of your peripheral vision sometimes. Um, and so it's, it's an important test kind of just to check general health. And, and I totally, so when I was there not too long ago, I remember my head was kind of like in a cone and they would have those way squiggly lines. They tried to trick me and I have a little button. Like, exactly. Are you video games? No, I totally understand that. That makes perfect sense. Now, would, would I say this, that you know, uh, when we talk about, I'm going super dorky medical, I promise not to. So peripheral vision is using a lot of your rods, those photoreceptor cells. While when you talk about color testing, that's more of your cones, which are color and more central in nature. Is that a correct statement, Brenda? Yeah, I would say generally that would be a correct statement. Yay for me. Yay. All right. <laughs> so now... Can you explain, like, you know, one of the main things that, you know, a very common cause of blindness, unfortunately, is glaucoma. And I know that many people screen for it. It's part of the pretest exam. Can you explain to the listeners, how do we screen for glaucoma? So usually the main screening test for glaucoma is we do a uh, pressure test, the intraocular pressure. So just like there's blood pressure, there's a pressure within your eyes and we screen for glaucoma using the pressures of your eyes. People with glaucoma, some can have elevated pressures. So that's why we screen the pressure in your eye. The way we usually do it um, is, and now there's lots of different ways to do it, but the notorious like air puff test that everybody's afraid <laughs> of, right? Is this going to blow air in my face? Is this going to blow air in my eye? You need to tell me. Um, and so that's one of the tests that we use. Um, and there's a lot of different, different, different tests that we use now too. And, um, usually if the pressure is high, the doctors will be a little bit more concerned for glaucoma and they might do some extra workup for glaucoma. Um, normal pressures usually run between eight and 22. Oh, um, okay. Yes. So normal pressure is usually between eight and 22, but unfortunately normal doesn't always mean disease free. Oh. So another important part of the exam is just to do, you know, that for the doctor to take a look at the nerve of your eyes, because that's where glaucoma happens. And we just have to kind of look at the nerve itself to decide if it's a healthy looking nerve or not. So let me ask you this. So I'm going to throw some medical pearls in there for my, uh, yeah. my students who are listening here. Now, now, Brenda, make fun of me if I'm giving wrong info. Glaucoma, is, it's, it's all about something called aqueous humor, right? Yes. Aqueous humor is something that's pr produced, uh, you know, by the ciliary bodies. Yes. You know, you make it, then you want to reabsorb it. And if you're not reabsorbing it or you're making too much of it, it that builds up a lot of the pressure and causes things like glaucoma. Is that kind of right? Yeah. Or not really? Yes, I would say that is. I would say that is. So when, I, when they screened for glaucoma for me, I don't know if because I'm a bad patient or a mean person, they didn't do it like that. They actually put some kind of like lidocaine type thing on my eye. Then they mm -hmm. actually made me stare at something. They placed something literally on my cornea to measure the pressures. Now, do they, they didn't like me? Is that why they did that one? Or is that, <laughs> I don't know. Anything, what, what's I the choices? Means, 
if anything, I think that that means they like you more. <laughs> so that's called that's called the Goldman t- uh, tonometry, which is an applanation tonometry, which means that it actually touches your eye. Um, and I usually do that most often too. Um, that usually cannot be done by a technician. It usually takes the doctor to do it. Um, and it is the gold standard for checking pressures. And so for all of my glaucoma patients, for all of my glaucoma suspects, that's the test I use for sure. Um, ah, okay. No, now that I remember, it wasn't a technician. No, the doctor yeah. did it herself when we were doing it. Okay. You know, should I send her some thank you note or yeah, something? Or? For sure. Yes. <laughs> we always uh, enjoy thank yous. <laughs> so um, for those pre-tests that we covered, you know what I mean? The color sensitivity, peripheral, the glaucoma, is there anything else I should talk about as far as pre-tests or is this all done for you before you see the patient? So I think um, some of these tests um, we do ourselves and some of these tests, um, we let technicians do, for example, um, one of the parts of the pretest, sometimes people do pupil testing and that testing, I actually prefer to do it myself because I feel like, um, it's some of the abnormalities are so subtle, um, that it really takes like a trained eye to look for that. Uh, did you purposely say that? Uh, no, trained I eye. did. That is so funny. I totally didn't do that on purpose. Oh, um, friend is a comedian. Yeah, no, I know. Oh my God, I should have my own podcast. Uh, but yes, so there are certain tests like that, that I would prefer to sort of do myself. So, you know, speaking of pupillary reactions, so um, what are you looking for when you do that? What, what, what's the purpose behind the test? What are you screening for? What diseases are associated with that? So generally the idea is when light is shined into the eye, mm-hmm. the eye transfer that information to the optic nerve and the optic nerve transfer that information to the brain. And mm-hmm. then the brain sends the information back to your eye to tell it how to react, right? So. Right. Light goes into the eye, your your brain tells you, you need to constrict your pupils because too much light is coming in. When there's not enough light coming in, um, you your brain tells you, hey, you need to open up your pupils so that more light can shine through. Um, and that pathway is a very neurological pathway. And within that pathway, if there's a, a defect in any of that area, in the eye, in the retina, in the optic nerve, in the brain, those things will show up on your pupillary testing. So it's a good screener test to say like, hey, something is not even, the eyes are not reacting the same way. There's something different between the two eyes and I need to be looking for something that's causing this. Oh, that's well said. So would I be wrong by saying for med students, you think about this and people have stroke, people with multiple sclerosis, you know what I mean? Yeah. So a lot of consensual eye response or not consensual eye response. Yes, exactly. And a lot of, a lot of things have to be like certain lesions in that specific pathway. Okay. Um, Yes. So usually you would be looking for things that would be in the specific pathway. Nice. And since you're looking, doing this reaction anyways, um, are you, are you looking at my cornea at the same time to see if my, if I have any keratitis or abrasions or anything like that? Usually for me, no, I can imagine that a primary care doctor might be doing that using the pupillary light to just kind of look at the front surface of the eye. For me, I have something called a slit lamp, which is a microscope. Um, And so it's much easier for me to look under that than just to use like an ancillary light source. So explain to me, what is a slit lamp? Because I do think of a a little line of light and how's that different from just looking at the eye? What do you get with the slit lamp? 
So the slit lamp has a microscope attached to the light. And usually okay. what we do is this is where you kind of, they tell it, hey, put your chin in here, forehead yeah. to the front. And then we use that microscope of light to kind of take a look at the front surface of your eyes. And then we can actually, be using special lenses, we can actually put light through those lenses, then through your pupils and take a look at the back of your eye as well. So nice. All, yeah. But all of that together is because of this, you know, slip map that's like a microscope along with other lenses that we use to help to kind of check. It's mainly to check the health of your eyes. So this is where going through just basic anatomy, this is where you're looking for inflammation and damage to the cornea. This is when exactly. I would be looking at my lens and would I be wrong by saying this is a good way to detect cataracts? Exactly. So that's exactly what I'm looking for. I look for any abnormalities on the cornea. I look for things like uveitis. Um, I look at cataracts. Um, I look at, you know, vitreous floaters. People complain about floaters all the time. Mm -hmm. um, and then we look at the retina and we look at the optic nerve. In general, this is a really, it's a microscope to help us check the overall health of the eye. So now I'm a little curious. So one of my jams in medicine when I'm wearing my Dr. Raj hat is sarcoidosis. And sarcoidosis is, is, is all about, you know, a uveitis, anterior uveitis, which, you know, I, I promised I wouldn't get dorky, but <laughs> uveitis is, is yeah. all about the iris of the eye, you know, iritis. So yes. it's a good test when you do the slit lamp to see if you had uveitis, what would you see in the iris? Would it be inflamed? Would it be, you know what I mean? Would so it you actually see things in the anterior chamber. That's usually yeah. what you see. Um, usually you're looking for cells. So small white dots floating around in the anterior chamber. Because mm -hmm. usually when you're, you don't have inflammation in the eye, there is no cells, you know, liberation of cells in the eye. And so that's mm -hmm. usually what we're looking for. And uh, obviously people that have active uveitis, they usually will also have redness, eye pain, light sensitivity. So all of that in combination with what we see in the, uh, under the slit lamp is, is how we diagnose uveitis. So let me ask you this. I'm not, I'm going off script a little bit. So I think okay. EBD for my, I'm being dorky again, posterior vitreous or detachment, mm -hmm. real common thing. And my, my dad had it. And mm -hmm. for those listening, you're seeing floaters in your eye and it could be one floater or many floaters. It really depends. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the big thing about this PBD is that, you know, the, 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 the this whole vitreous humor, uh, which actually, you know, kind of like a jelly substance in the eye keeps the retina where it needs to be in the back of the eye. And you always worry about things like retinal detachment. We see flashing lights. So my question is when you see floaters, is that a, a, a big alarm for you and your patients? Do they have to come back right away? Do you refer them somewhere else? Do you do give them reassurance? What, what is your thought process? So usually I, I tell patients floaters are very normal, but at the same time, it kind of depends. If you have a sudden onset of a floater, I always recommend getting a fully dilated exam to check on the health of the eye, just like you said, to check on the retina. Um, because the main concern of a posterior vitreous detachment is as it's detaching, it's causing traction on the retina and that traction can cause a tear or a hole. And usually those are the things that need to be fixed with laser or with surgery. Okay. Um, and because a tear or a hole can potentially cause a bigger tear and a bigger hole and eventually lose, potentially lose vision. So, but oftentimes a posterior vitreous detachment doesn't do any of that. And it yeah. just leaves you with floaters. It's very bothersome for some patients. And for some patients with time, you get used to it. And I have patients who name their floaters Frank, you know? <laughs> no, they totally do. And then I'm like, you know, do you see a floater? They go, you mean Frank? And I'm like, 
what? Well, I, I don't That's get it. That's funny, dude. Yeah, really, <laughs> patients are very cute. Um, I love it. And so, um, and so, you know, like I said, I tell patients it's really nothing to worry about if I don't see any problems in the back of the eye, but I give them warning symptoms before they leave always. Yeah. Flashes of light, like someone's taking a picture, sudden increase in floaters, or a shadow closing down on your vision. Any of those things, you come back in immediately. And, you know, and, you know, Brendan, this is why this podcast can be so important for, you know, people as we all get older, you know what I mean? I mean, I'm just thinking about so many things that just happen in the eyes because you're not a bad person. You're just getting old, you know, these floaters, cataracts, glaucoma. So, I mean, I know what you're going to say, but I want to ask you, it's important to see the eye doctor, right? So important. (laughs) I I always like want to emphasize that, you, you know, um, it's so much more than just getting glasses. You know, we really check on the overall health of your eye. I agree. And we're not done yet with this pretest. So, Oh, okay. Got it. Don't don't get all too comfortable there. We're not done. So one thing I wanted you to explain is kind of like anytime my med students take a board exam and there was a patient that comes in and there were some vision issues, they always mentioned visual acuity, you know, and, you know, even though they don't actually put my med students on the spot, they just say, here's the, it's 2060, 2080 in one eye and 2020 in the other. Can you just explain in layman's terms, what is visual acuity and how you measure it to the general audience? So we usually def, uh, measure it with different acuity charts. The Snellen is the most common, which is kind of where you get that 2020 acuity notation mm-hmm. from. Um, usually 2020 means um, you can see clearly at 20 feet what a normal person would see clearly at 20 feet. Okay. okay. Um, what normal vision would be. But if you were 2100, it means that uh, you would need to be at 20 feet where a normal person's, a normal vision person could see at a a hundred feet, but you would need to be standing at 20 feet in order to see that. So usually the bigger the number at the bottom, the worse your vision is. Um, okay. There are patients that, you know, have 2010 acuity. That means they see even Whoa. better. Yeah. Um, you know, people really pride themselves with that. <laughs> so, um, and I totally understand and I totally get it. Uh, but that's usually kind of what, what that notation means. Now that, that was well said. That was very med school. Like I like it, dude. I, think, I even understand that. Now at the end of my exam, you know, and I, I love my optometrist. She's, she's amazing, but they dilated my pupil. So it was kind of hard to drive right afterwards. You know what I mean? This is kind of like I couldn't accommodate as well. So what is this a standard move to dilate my pupils at the end? And why do you do it? So I usually dilate patients. If they're a first time patient, I try to convince all of them to dilate their eyes. So like we mentioned earlier, when light goes into your pupil, your pupil constricts and mm-hmm. we're shining a bunch of lights in your eyes when we're trying to examine your eyes. So it's actually hard for us to see all of the posterior segment of the eye or all of the back of the eye um, if your pupils are not dilated. But if we put these drops in your eyes, it makes your pupils dilate, which means your iris can no longer constrict. Now I have a bigger field to look into your eye and I can look into the periphery of the retina, which I usually wouldn't be able to do unless Ah. I laid it dry. And usually we're doing it mainly because we're just looking for any sort of deviation from normal, you know? And I say it like that because there are some deviations from normal that you can just monitor. It's not a big deal. You come back every year, we double check it. We make sure things are stable. And then there's obviously deviations from normal that will need treatment. 
earlier we were talking about if you saw a retinal hole or a retinal tear, mm -hmm. certain types of retinal holes and tears need to be treated immediately with laser and surgery. So that's usually kind of what we're looking for. And I always recommend getting dilations every one to two years. And that's just kind of part of my, my well, exam. Let me ask you this. So how come or why uh, you do a slit lamp exam and should you dilate me before the slit lamp or is it better to do it afterwards? You know what I mean? Wouldn't you get a better look if you dilate before doing the slit lamp exam? So we usually do both. So usually we take a look at your eyes before we dilate. That's kind mm -hmm. of checking. We usually use it to check the anterior health of the eye. So we're checking the cornea, the uh -huh. iron, the front okay. surface. And then after we put in the drops, we look at it again with a slit lamp. Um, and we, at that time, we're kind of looking at the back of the eye. We're looking at the, the lens for cataracts, the optic nerve for glaucoma. So sure. we do slit lamp before and after your exams. Gotcha. So slit lamp is a before and after, but you do before and after drops. And so the first time more anterior chamber stuff, like we're talking about, mm -hmm. and second time looking at the back of the eye. Exactly. Nice. Well said. So, all right, I'm going to throw you a curveball. I'm all about the curves. Okay. Uh, I'm a patient. I walk in to come see you and I throw out, hey, I'm a type two diabetic. My mm -hmm. AC is not at goal. You know what I mean? And uh, are you going to change your intervals of screening this patient? because they have diabetes? So the answer is yes. Um, so most diabetics, I do follow yearly. If I don't see any signs of diabetic retinopathy in the back of their eye, I don't see any uh, macular edema in the back of their eye. Um, in patients that I do see some type of retinopathy, and depending on what level of retinopathy they have, we do change their intervals. People with very severe retinopathy are usually followed every three months or sooner. Um, this is if they don't need treatment or surgery or um, injections and things like that. People with moderate amounts of retinopathy, we usually follow at least every six months or so. Um, and patients that have very mild or no retinopathy, usually like nine to 12 months. And this is a very general, you know, yeah, yeah. timeline that I'm giving you. Now, what I now diabetes, type two diabetes, especially type one, more autoimmune, not as common type two. There's so many people out there. You know, um, the most common presentation for type 2 diabetes is, you know, they think they have no symptoms at all. That's what's scary about it, you know? Right. And I'm just kind of, you know, giving a public service announcement that one of the most important things to think about when you think about that type 2 diabetes is the eye. And that's why we need people like you to look back there. Yeah. Would I be wrong by saying that type 2 diabetes puts someone at risk for cataracts, glaucoma, retinal detachment, um, uh, those uh, diabetic, uh, what's it called? These these uh, retinopathies you're talking about is that is that that would be true, correct? Yes, that would be true. So um, having diabetes is a risk factor for certain types of you know ocular disease, just like you had mentioned, and so um, so for sure. I mean, but in general, a lot of different systemic health factors um, can be potential risk factors for you know macular degeneration, glaucoma, mm -hmm. and things like that. So just managing your overall systemic health and seeing a general primary care doctor every year to kind of make sure you're doing your blood work and everything is so important, right? And primary care yeah. doctors are usually very good about patients that have diabetes and sending them to the eye, pro eye provider. All right. So now you set yourself up for another question. So I'm going to, and you're going to do another question. So you briefly said the word macular edema, then you said macular degeneration. So once again, 
I'm going to let you field macular degeneration, but correct me if I mislead my listeners. So the macula, everyone, because Dr. Brenda didn't explain it, is a place. (laughs) I'm sorry, but you're so much better at this. (laughs) It's a very, very tiny place on the retina, but it's it's so important. It, it, It gives you the fine details that you see. And we really do worry about this in in diabetics because they could get swelling, macular edema. But there are also something called macular degeneration. And Dr. Ye, can you explain what macular degeneration is? So macular degeneration is when as we age or as certain people age, because it's not, it's not something that everybody gets as they get older, but certain populations are more at risk. Um, and there is deposits in the back of the eye that just doesn't get cleared out and pumped out as it should. And these deposits oftentimes called drusen um, can coagulate and they can blur out your vision. And there are different types of macular degeneration. You'll hear people talking about it all the time. It's the dry type and the wet type. Mm -hmm. Um, And the dry type is generally, it's hard for me to say this, but, you know, people think it's the better type to have because a lot, oftentimes the dry type is not as advanced as the wet type. Um, But unfortunately the dry type doesn't really have treatments out in the morning. There are vitamins that you can take to hopefully uh, delay progression of the dry type. Um, and those are you are, referring to vitamin C? No, I'm actually referring to Aritz vitamins. It's actually okay. a combination of uh, vitamin C, vitamin E, Z, okay. lutein. Um, so they did like a lot of tests on, you know, it was actually a really big clinical study where uh, they checked these vitamins to see, you know, how if they can delay the progression of macular degeneration. Um, And then there's the wet type of macular degeneration, um, which is usually new blood vessels growing in the back of the eye. Um, And those would the medical word be neovascularization? Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Sorry. You know, I'm so used to talking to patients that I forget, you know, I'm talking to a medical doctor who knows all these terms. No, Um, no, just trying to show off, just trying to show off. No, I'm very like layman's term, but, um, But yeah, so that's exactly neovascular AMD um, Mm -hmm. is new blood vessels growing and those blood vessels need to be treated because they bleed. And when they bleed, that's when patients lose vision um, and they bleed very quickly. So they usually need to be treated very quickly too. Oh, well said. So you've, you've graduated from the pre-test exams. (laughs) That segment. So we're going to, we're going to talk about glasses because, you know, when we were kind of talking together off stage about what we want to help the general public with. I mean, everyone's got glasses. I got glasses. So, you know, what I did was I actually kind of sent out a poll to all my listeners and students and everyone. If, what questions can we ask about glasses? So I didn't think we'd get this many responses. So here, get I'm ready. ready. <laughs> Bang these out going down. Okay. So the first one is, I guess someone saw that you could go online and get glasses, and they thought that was very convenient instead of seeing an optometrist. Um, Dr. Ye, can you comment about what they're talking about? Oh, I'm like hissing because that's <laughs> like my thing. Um, you know, I think they say something like 75% of adult population need to wear some sort of visual correction. And, you know, we're very lucky because that's what brings them to the door through the doors, right? They come in to see us. Um, but I think the main thing I want to say is, you know, we do so much more than glasses. Um, we check on the health of the eye, just like we were talking about earlier. We dilate the eyes to check and make sure there's no, you know, deviation from normal things that need to be treated. 
Um, and so um, getting an online exam for glasses, number one, they're obviously less accurate. But besides that, that means that you won't be coming through the door to get your eye health checked because you're thinking, I see fine. I don't need to do anything. I already got my glasses. And so that's why I, I, I cannot emphasize how much I dislike online eye exams. Um, and it is totally not money oriented or anything like that. I work in a hospital. Um, it's really about caring for the patients. And, you know, yeah. I, I think one of the only, I, and correct me if I'm wrong, because you'll know this better than I do, but I think the eye, the seeing blood vessels in your body, I think the eye is the only place a doctor can see blood vessels in your body without using expensive imaging technique. Now, no, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote my wife, who's your good friend. So yeah. my wife is Dr. Kulai. You know, she's a rheumatologist. So um, she deals with a disease called scleroderma quite a bit. I'm being dorky, listeners, I apologize. So the other place she looks at blood vessels is in the capillary nail fold bed. So what oh. she does is that she does an oil immersion on the fingers and she could see the capillaries right here, uh, right uh, by the nail fold bed. And that's the only other place besides the eye. And most doctors like me don't got your skill, Dr. Ye. So we can't look in the eye as well. So that's why many people do that, but there is only two places. So you're right. Just saying that, hey, this is a bonus that if someone like you could see vessels and make diagnosis, you know what I mean? So take advantage of it. Yeah. And I, you know, I can't tell you how often that, um, in, and we definitely don't like to be the first to sort of see changes in the back of the eye, but, but I can't tell you how often, you know, we'll see retinopathy in the back of the eye or plaques in the arteries of oh, the eye. Yeah. And we're the one that says you need to go see a primary care doctor and get worked up for high blood pressure, diabetes, and stroke risks. And, you know, they go to their doctor and then they realize, oh, you know what I did, I did have diabetes you know, wow. yeah. And partly that's just, awesome. That is awesome. Yeah. And partly it's just because, you know, people are not always as good about going to their regular, regular health exams every year either. And, and you know what, but just by giving that little hint, all these patients got to do is maybe some simple blood work, like a hemoglobin A1C or check their blood pressure better or a lipid panel. These are great tips. No, no, no. I mean, after talking to you in the first segment, that question about doing things online and not seeing you sounds not like the best idea for general health. Exactly. So, Hey, so uh, here's a good question. So, um, lenses, you know what I mean? I'm confused. You know what I mean? I just kind of like many patients just leave it up to you to make my decision. So the question, they did some effort here. They said, can, can, uh, the doctor explain to me the different types of lenses. And she gave three examples. Um, single, a bifocal, and something called a progressive. Can you explain the difference of those? Yeah. So a single vision lens is where the entire lens provides vision for one specific distance, usually. Um, Single vision type lenses are most frequently worn by patients, usually under the age of 40, uh, because they still have the ability to accommodate and focus for up close things. And so, you know, most of your kids are in single vision lenses. Um, And then a bifocal is where you have that line at the bottom portion of your glass. <laughs> yes. Gives your age away a little bit. Oh my God. I feel know. like I'm getting old. Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, but it essentially gives you focusing ability at two different places. So it actually has two different prescriptions within that lens. Um, and then 
those generally are worn by patients that um, are usually over the age of 40 and might need a little bit of help with their reading. Okay. Um, sometimes uh, young kids can even wear those for myopia management. Um, ah. Yeah, that's not my specialty, but a lot of um, parents are worried about their kids' myopia getting worse. So some doctors might recommend things like bifocals and things like that. Um, and myopia for, you don't like to explain things to the listeners. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the broader topic of an a- astigmatism, correct? Um, it's the broader topic of just refractive errors. In Refractory general. errors Myop- in the eye. Yeah, myopia is being actually nearsighted. Nearsighted. Well said. Yes. Boom. And okay. then um, progressive lenses are the no line multifocal. So they have they actually have multiple prescriptions within them. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, they all have right. multiple prescriptions at all distances, but generally people divide it into distance, intermediate, which is like computer, and near, which is like reading. And so progressives kind of give you sort of a great sort of overall general wear to give you all that distance, all, all those distances. But there's obviously drawbacks because you'll get a little bit more peripheral distortion. It's a little oh. bit harder to um, kind of get used to in terms of wearing progressives. But a lot of, you know, there's no line. So people can't tell that you're four. (laughs) 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 So, I mean, and this is where we trust you and you trust the patients and you do certain testing because initially I was like, maybe I should get a progressive. You know what I mean? I get all the distances there. I mean, is that the hot topic? Do people want the progressive? It sounds pretty cool, but it's not. Yeah, I would say, you know, and this is me going on to my spiel about being online again. This is also why you want to come into an optical to do your glasses selection instead of just kind of buying glasses online, you know, because um, with glasses wear, it doesn't just have to fit well on your face, which an optician is going to help you make sure the glasses fit well on your face, but it has to fit well into your lifestyle, right? Okay. Yeah. The lens that you use has to really much fit like, Hey, what do you do for a living? Are you working outdoors all the time? Are you on the computer all the time? Or are you a tailor that's always like working with fine objects like needles and threading or jewelers that do that? So just kind of different lifestyles are going to decide, help us decide like what lenses will work out best for you. Um, I would say progressives, there are so many new different types of progressive that you know, that we can customize to fit you, you, your lifestyle and the frame that you pick. Okay. Um, and so I, I don't want to say progressive is the hot thing, but it is probably yeah. the most customizable. If that makes okay. Sense. No, no. Well said. No, you didn't commit to anything there. It was good. <laughs> here's, here's a practical question. You know I mean? I guess one of the listeners uh, actually, um, they want to avoid seeing annoying reflections on their eyeglasses. I know what they're talking about. So what, what can you do if someone just complains about that? So usually there's something called an anti-reflective coating in glasses. And it essentially is a coating that's applied to the outside of your glasses or the, your, the lenses specifically. Okay. Right. The coating on the lenses. Um, and that coating process will kind of take away any sort of reflections from the front and back of the lens so that oh. it allows more light to show through the lens and it almost looks, it makes the lens almost look sort of more invisible so that patient people can see you better um, and you kind of get more optical quality, right? Because you're getting rid of all that glare and reflection. 
Um, and especially for you, Raj, who's on TV all the time. That's like, that's like Aww. an optometrist's biggest pet peeve is when we see these doctors or these people on TV or mm-hmm. actors that are making millions. And then they're like, you can't see their eye because there's so much reflection on their glasses. Um, and so uh, anti-reflective coding is and also with Zoom nowadays, right? Because yeah. everybody's Zooming. So it'll allow other people to see your eyes better as well. So I'll, I'll let you know something. So Michelle, my wife, loves me with glasses, but you know, I'm still a little, I don't know if I want to wear glasses on TV and stuff. So I wear my contacts way too much. Okay. Um, I do have glasses <gasps> and I'm really cheap. I don't know why. It's just my nature. Um, is it, does it cost extra to get this reflection? Should I ask my optometrist about it? Because I get very narrow-minded, like, no, 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 cheapest amount. What does the insurance cover? You know what I mean? I mean, is it expensive? so anti-reflective coating? Typically, it is an extra coating. That's that is an extra cost on top of your um, glasses. Mm-hmm. I do think there might be certain, and don't quote me on this. There might be certain insurance that do cover certain coatings. Okay. And so I can't tell you for sure if it's always covered. Of course not. Yeah. Yes. But um, it's, it's not it's also, free though. It's, it's not like a standard thing that comes with my glasses. No, it's not. No, it's not a standard thing that comes with lenses, but it really helps for glare at night when people drive too. No, it sounds, no, I definitely want to get it. I'm actually jotting this down next time I yes. <laughs> actually comes up on me to ask about that. Okay. So here's a cool one. So this goes, I, I kind of think my mom sent this one in. <laughs> so she wants to know that she goes out, you know, a, a, a lot and that makes me happy. She likes to garden and everything. So she's interested in glasses that change to sunglasses when you go outside because she saw something about that. Can you explain, is there such a thing or is she making it up? Yes, there is such a thing. These are called photochromic lenses. Um, the biggest sort of U.S. Um, brand is probably called Transitions. And so that's why these two words sometimes kind of get used synonymously. Um, okay. These are glasses which are active. These are lenses, I'm sorry, which are activated by UV so when you go outside, because of the sun has UV, um, it will get activated by the sun's UV and it will change to dark. No but, way. Yeah, so it's totally cool. So the idea is great. <laughs> um, there are certain little drawbacks, though. Um, for example, there's still UV rays in the air when it's a cloudy day. And okay. so even when it's a cloudy day, your lenses can potentially turn a little bit darker, mm. which yeah. decreases the amount of light coming through. And in the car they usually don't change very much because okay. your windshield already has a UV protection layer. I didn't know that. Yes. <laughs> so the car windshield already has a UV protection layer. So because they block the UV rays out, they don't change your glasses as much. And most oftentimes, especially when we're driving in the California sun, that's when we want the tint, right? Is yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. So usually I still recommend normal, typical sunglasses that are, already tinted okay in the car now when you first described it it sounded like from a sci-fi movie i walk outside and my glasses automatically yeah, exactly Whoa, i didn't even know this existed yeah <laughs> oh all right so we're gonna we're gonna shift gears in these questions it seems like people okay. are interested in their children which is you know this is my big jam right now brenda you know i got like oh my god it's three <laughs> so many kids i got so many kids yeah. help me help me out with this one so one of my listeners wants to know, where is this some warning signs that a child might need glasses? I know it's a very open-ended question, but is there anything that says, hey, you need to come see me a little bit earlier or make an appointment? Yeah, I mean, you know, the thing with children that's hard is 
sometimes children doesn't know what blur is. You know, if, they, if, if their life has always been blurry, they don't know something is wrong. But, you know, just like something that you might do, you know, when you have blurry vision, you'll like, you'll like squint and you'll kind of be like, you'll move your head around and you'll like move your eye around. You'll like cover yeah. one eye versus another um, to see like, Oh, can I see better this way or that way? So things like that, if you're seeing your kids do things like that, squinting, moving their head around, trying to see things better. Those are definitely warning signs that, Hey, your child might need glasses. Um, sometimes, you know, nice point. we like rub our eyes a lot because, you know, it's just so much fatigue and eye strain. Like, yeah. Oh, like, oh, like, you know, it's uncomfortable. Yeah. And so, um, those are another good warning signs. Um, things like maybe like being clumsy a little bit, like if you, you know, you know, not putting things in the right position, it might well show like your eyes aren't really working well together. Your two eyes yeah. aren't working well together. Um, and just kind of maybe any sort of difficulty, like reading or difficulties in school, like, I don't, yeah. I don't want to read because it's just too hard or it's, too, yeah. you know, things like that can usually, you know, getting an eye exam to make sure that their eyes are functioning well um, is important. No, and, and that's, and, and I'm just going to interject a true story. You know, I never realized till my freshman year in college where I was sitting and it affects your school and it affects your notes. It affects your grades. And, you know, I think it's so important for kids. Don't wait till like I did to college to start wearing glasses no, I, it would have been nicer to have some good vision in high school and junior high. So well said there. Um, let's talk about safety in glasses. So mm-hmm. my next person wants to choose um, their son, I guess, is a, has a lot of energy. I'm sure me and you know about having kids with lots of energy. Um, <laughs> they're worried that he could break his glasses when he's wearing them. And they want to know what's the best way to protect his eyes or any advice you can give in young kids, if they choose glasses to wear it? Um, so in general, actually for all of my patients, I only recommend plastic lenses. Oh, um, okay. Yeah. So, so lenses do come in plastic and glass. Um, uh, but I would say the percent of people wearing glass lenses now is very little. Okay. And usually I, I, I actually will write down patient insisted on wearing on glass lenses, sort of document and discuss with patient, you know, the dangers of glass lenses. Sure. Um, and part of it is, you know, glass can shatter. Uh, plastic, yeah. plastic can, you know, can, can crack, obviously it can break, but it doesn't usually shatter. And okay. so if it doesn't shatter the pieces. It's uh, less likely for it to sort of the pieces to kind of get poked into the eye or something. Oh, that's, like that. Uh, that sounds scary. Oh I know. God, it's like a whole um, movie. <laughs> and so, and so in general, and in general, plastic lenses generally are just more impact resistant, you know, okay. all hits it, it doesn't shatter or it doesn't break right away or anything like that. Um, the most typical material that gets used for kids is actually a material called polycarbonate. All right. Um, it's actually even more uh, impact resistant than the standard um, than the standard plastic lenses that get used, and um, it also is a little bit thinner and a little bit lighter for comfort reasons. Um, that makes sense. Yeah, and so that's usually the typical. Like if you go to an optical or an optician, um, polycarbonate is the sort of the standard that they use for kids. Uh, great answer. So I like this one. Um, hey. How often should I get a new pair of glasses? Is the answer based on your insurance or is there a medical? 
<laughs> For some people, I do think that's the correct answer, actually. Um, so usually we recommend probably every one to two years. Oh, um, okay. So okay. one of, you know, for kids, sometimes especially for kids, you know, they're changing, their face shape is changing, they're getting bigger. So just the, the way the frame fits is going to be a little bit different. Makes um, sense. And then, like I said, we tend to recommend plastic lenses and just with general wear and tear, people can take the best care of their glasses and it can last for a long time. But most people probably, you know, you just kind of leave them on a desk here and there. Oops, they dropped or something, you know. Yeah, totally. And so, they do get scratched and they do cause issues. Coatings do get, um, do also get, they don't, they just kind of get warped with wear just in sure. general. Okay. And so all of those things kind of will decrease your vision quality. And so that's why we kind of re recommend replacing your glasses every one to two years. And insurance mm -hmm. generally do cover glasses every one to two years as well. Oh, well, that, that's kind of good timing there. Exactly. Now, I like this question. I think this question is actually a question to you or, or to, to, to quiz us. So the patient says they can drive okay, and but they've noticed having trouble reading their book at night when they're in bed. And they said, what's wrong? So are they quizzing us? I mean, who's quizzing us? I'm like... <laughs> So that's actually an easy one. And I can answer that one. Okay, go for it. Um, and I can tell you the age of that patient as well. Just based oh on my God. <laughs> I'm like psychic. <laughs> um, so earlier we were talking about, you know, as we hit like age forties, that's when you lose your eye loses its ability to accommodate. Mm -hmm. And so when you get to that age, it's called presbyopia and it's very, very normal. This is very, okay. very normal. And so um, your eye when you're young, you're, the lens in your eye is able to focus and you can read at distance, you can focus up close. Um, as we get a little bit older, um, that lens is not as flexible anymore. And okay. So it doesn't have the ability to focus up close as much anymore. And your arms really don't grow longer and longer as you get older. And so you'll have to use glasses to help. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so you'll have to use glasses to help you read a little bit. And um, that's when people start using bifocals. That's when people start using progressives or separate pairs of reading glasses just for reading. Now, so let me give the medical pearl here. Thanks to you. So correct me if I'm wrong, doctor. So this, you know, what we talk, uh, you know, this presbyopia, if I pronounced it wrong, is not a disease. It's not a refractory problem. It's just, I'm old. Is that, is this an aging problem? The answer is it is an aging problem. It is a type of refractive error. I do call it a refractive error, but okay. it is an aging problem. It is. Okay. Gotcha. Um, yeah. So is the cure don't get old? Is that the answer? Yes. If you come up with a serum, <laughs> let me know. Okay. Now, well, so I hope that that answers your question. Whoever gave me that one, putting us on the spot. And I like this last one. And, you know, we're close, we're closing to the last segment, but this one I, I do want to know. Uh, when you get your eyeglass prescription, I got mine recently. Um, there are all these numbers and I don't know what, I guess my, my listener wanted to know what, what do those numbers mean, Brenda? Why are there all these numbers there? Okay. It's, I'm going to try to explain it as best as I can without like a picture image, but okay. the very first number is usually called sphere. And that number is usually if you're farsighted or if you're nearsighted. Oh yeah. The second number is usually called cylinder. 
Mm-hmm. It's CYL on the thing. And that is usually telling you if you have astigmatism or if you don't have astigmatism and uh-huh. how much you have it. Okay. And astigmatism, you know, we get that, you know, we get that from patients all the time because they think it's some sort of eye disease, but it's not. It's really just like a refractive error, just like myopia and pres- uh, hyperopia or nearsighted and farsightedness. It's just the curvature of your eye is a little bit different. So your eye focuses on different, it focuses on different planes within the eye. And so you have to use glasses or contacts to correct it, just like okay. you do for farsightedness and nearsightedness. Um, nice. Yeah. And that last number yeah. is axis. And that number is only there if you do have astigmatism. Okay. So astigmatism has to come with a certain meridian or axis, and that's associated with that. Um, And then at the bottom, if you're, you know, 40 plus, um, you'll have an ad, ADD, and that's for Mm -hmm. the presbyopic patients that you were talking about. So that's the reading prescription that you'll need extra to help you read better. Oh, well, thanks for deciphering the code for us. I still need you. That I still yeah. was going to remember all this, but I mean, thank God we have people like you. So on our, on our closing questions, you know what I mean? And I got to say, I can't believe, I know I, you said nine o'clock. I'm looking, <laughs> hey, I got your back. I, mean, I yeah. do this for a living, you know? <laughs> so yeah. qu- quickly answer these three questions. Number one, um, Someone just asked about eyeglasses uh, versus contacts. Do you have any just broad statement? Is it individual choice or do you have any broad statement about one versus the other? So generally it is individual choice. Um, Sometimes it's cosmesis. Sometimes it's for certain activities. A lot of kids that are in very active sports, like if you're in Taekwondo or something, you probably don't want to be in glasses because, you know, those can get, (laughs) you know, get broken. And so, you know, in those cases, we recommend contacts. Um, but there are going to be some patients that actually can, those are called medically indicated contact lens wearers. And what that means is there are patients that actually have certain ocular surface disease or the front surface, their eye is not as even as it should be. And they have to use a contact lens to smooth out that surface in order to see better. Yeah. And so those patients actually do see better with contacts as opposed to seeing with glasses. So there are, you know, certain types of that. But generally, for the general public, it is a preference thing. Gotcha. And again, I got to know, I'm being a little nosy here. Uh, Dr. Ye, what, what do you, are you a contacts woman? Are you a glasses person? A little bit of both? What oh are my you? gosh, I'm like so embarrassed to tell you this. <laughs> I don't wear anything. You have I know. <laughs> yes, I, it's, it's so embarrassing because, um, oh gosh, can't believe I'm sharing this. I, Are you that young? Are you like in the team? Yeah, I'm only 21. <laughs> and so that's why. No, but um, I don't wear anything because I, I really don't have a very much of a prescription. I didn't get my first eye exam until I was like 13, I think. Okay. Okay. Um, and then my next one was when I was in optometry school. Or oh. no, when I was shadowing an optometrist school okay. right before going to optometry <laughs> school, actually. So, so, um, so yeah. I, I don't have like a preference, like which, which one I prefer myself mm-hmm. because I don't tend to wear it, okay. uh, but, but I am hitting 40 soon. So I will be wearing glasses. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, like I promised you, we're not doing the, the video here, but if you ever could see her, she don't look for, you don't look 40. Huh? <laughs> oh, thank you. All right. Um, but Hey, two more questions. Uh, I like this one, you know, in just the, in talking about just eye disease in general, we, we went over so many different eye diseases. So let's call it eye health. 
Is there any lifestyle changes you or lifestyle things people who are listening could do to just reduce their risk for eye problems and stuff? Is there any general things you want to mention? Yeah. So in general, obviously, as we age, there are going to be certain diseases. You know, one of the risk factors for those certain diseases like macular degeneration and glaucoma um, is just age itself. So those things you can't help. Right. Um, But for example, uh, just for macular degeneration, smoking is a huge risk factor that you can't help. Yes. And, and similarly, cardiovascular disease is a risk factor. So those are things that if you, if you had well managed your systemic health the whole time, that puts you at a lower risk, um, for things, you know, like glaucoma, there are things like, and, and all diseases like race, you can't help genetics. You can't really help. No. Um, Yeah. But there are certain things that you can, you know, some people think that sleep apnea, right up your alley (laughs) thank you for throwing me a bone some people feel like sleep apnea can actually uh be a big risk factor in glaucoma that that's kind of a debate that's been ongoing for years whether it is or it is not Mm -hmm. um and obviously you know for diabetic changes how long you've had diabetes for how well diabetes is controlled um how well your blood pressure cholesterol those things are controlled and smoking you know, so obviously for certain diseases, genetics, race, those things we can't help, but just managing your overall systemic health, um, is going to be helpful to decrease your risk factors for some of these potentially blinding diseases. And I'm so happy you mentioned smoking because I think many people just think smoking lungs, which you should, but you know, smoking affects every single organ in the body. And, you know, and I got to tell you, it sucks not to breathe, but not being able to see that that's horrible you know and i think that's i'm so glad you said that for more motivation for my people who do smoke because i'm a lung doctor to stop that's that's great and i'm just uh, give you the last the easiest question for last because people are asking is that hey um people want to have good eye health you know and i think they're going to you know listen to the good you know lifestyle modifications and exercise stop smoking but what do you recommend in, in broad strokes how often should someone see you Dr. Ye, how long, how often? So usually every year. So usually I always recommend eye exams every year. Um, You don't always necessarily get new glasses every year, just like we said. And I usually dilate patients the first time I see them. Um, I don't always dilate necessarily every single year, um, but I usually dilate at least every one to two years. (laughs) That's my (laughs) own problem. Just to, just to, you know, you know, patients can deal with that. They can deal with the torture for just once a year or so. Um, and so, so, so yeah, I do recommend yearly eye exams and often, and there are going to be patients that need more frequent eye exams, patients that are being followed for glaucoma, patients that are being followed for what AMD, those patients can be going in every month, every two to three months. So it just kind of depends But for the routine exams every year. Dude, you did it. Dr. Yeah. You are so awesome. (laughs) You went on time. And let me say my closing right here is that, you know, I I really hope everyone enjoyed this podcast. I mean, this was kind of like the most fun I had in a while. And, you know, Dr. Ye was just so awesome. And um, do you want to, if someone wants to actually have you as a doctor or see you, is there a way they could find you? Do you have a, or do you work and all that? Um, Yeah. So I actually only see veterans because I work at the veterans hospitals. I take that back. Everyone, if you're a veteran, you want to see me. (laughs) Yeah. And if you're a veteran, please come see me. I would love to help you out. Um, But I can definitely recommend you to very good private practice doctors that I know around the area. 
<laughs> that's great. And everyone, uh, once again, she is amazing. And, you know, that's it for the, the Dr. Raj podcast. And, you know, I'll be back again in around two weeks with another topic about wellness and health. So see everyone out there soon. Thank you again, Brenda, for your great interview. Thank you, Raj. You take care. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. Our producers are Madison Linden and Chris Brightigan. Our executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended for medical advice. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis.